The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, she was the earliest and most famous Greek woman poet. Her name, Sappho. Her specialty, singing songs roughly 2,600 years ago on the island of Lesbos. Her legend survived more intact than her poetry. But what we do have from the shreds and shards is a voice that is direct, rich with imagery, and full of passion. We talk to Diane J. Rayor, a lifelong scholar and appreciator of Sappho, about her book, Sappho, A New Translation of the Complete Works. That's coming up today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. So excited to be talking to you today because I get to present Diane Rayor, who is an absolute delight. If this doesn't send you for the bookstore, I don't know what will. Sappho is kind of a miracle, even though she was hugely famous in her day and also famous for the next few centuries. We're still lucky to have even what we do. So much of the past has been lost to the crumbling crush and churn of history, but not these remnants. We'll hear from Diane what's left, how Diane breathes life into it, and how she herself first caught the Sappho bug and what it's meant for her over the decades. That's our main course today. For an appetizer, how about some literary news? Let's see here. Going through the articles, we've how, oh, here's a good one. The independent bookstores springing up in Kiev. They've popped up like mushrooms after rain, says Maria Glaznova in a recent article in The Guardian. She's talking about the bookshops in the Ukrainian capital, and apparently they are springing up all over. Independent bookshops. Why? This is a place that's It's gone through a horrible winter, through drone attacks and blackouts. One might think hunkering down would be the default mode. Instead, well, actually, one might think that, but not those of us here at the History of Literature, right? If you're a regular listener, you no doubt heard the letter from our Ukrainian friend who was sharing our podcast with her friends and fellow literature lovers, asked us for a little help. That was an honor to provide. But back to the story. One or you you could be forgiven for thinking that Ukrainians would eschew bookshops at the moment, given all that they're going through. Instead, there are a bunch of new ones cropping up. Shelves crammed with Ukrainian classics, contemporary fiction and poetry, and foreign literature in translation. George Orwell features strongly, not a surprise, and also books by Ukrainian authors and books translated into Ukrainian. Customers want books that are not about suffering, not about the war, and books that address the question, what does it actually mean to be Ukrainian? And the blackouts actually led to more reading. There was a resurgence in reading. When the power goes out and the Wi-Fi is down, Paper between covers and a candle can help get you through the night. 
The quotes from the bookstore patrons and owners make the new stores seem like acts of defiance, moral callings, a seizing of the day. One owner worked as a flight attendant. She lost her job during the pandemic, and she opened the bookshop, which is airy, with large windows. Quote, I wanted it to be light and warm, like a library from the past. She says, maybe a school library, but in a good way. No Soviet stuff. I want people to come in here and feel safe. End quote. And in another bookstore, there are comfortable chairs and tables that are filled with people drinking coffee and wine. And Dolly Parton is on the stereo. Hmm. See? We are torn apart so often we humans but we come together our hearts are with those book-loving ukrainians finding time amid the horror and the struggles of war seeking each other's company looking for community looking for learning looking for literature a quick break and then sappho with diane rayor Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Diane Rayor, Professor Emerita of Classics at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. Professor Rayor is co-editor of Latin Lyric and Elegiac Poetry and has translated numerous works, including works by Euripides and Sophocles. She joins us today to discuss a new translation of the complete works of Sappho. Diane Rayor, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you, and thank you so much for inviting me. So your acknowledgments begin with a thanks to Marcia Dobson of Colorado College, quote, for initiating my life with Sappho's poetry, end quote. I was wondering if you could tell us 
a little about that first reading of Sappho. Yes. So I stumbled into classics in the first place. I stumbled into taking Greek language just because it looked so pretty, actually. Mm -hmm. It looked beautiful, sound beautiful. And so I started taking Greek as a freshman. And then in my junior year, so my third year of Greek, we were reading some Sappho and other archaic, so the older lyric poets. Mm. And so I was reading Sappho in the context of the other male lyric poets as well. Mm -hmm. So that was my very first experience. But when I talk about her initiating, really I'm talking about her initiating me as a translator. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she introduced me to Sappho, who I had never heard of before, but she also asked me to translate the second number two poem of Sappho because she said she didn't like the translations that were available. And that was the lightning striking moment because really my life changed after that. I became a translator. Yeah. And had you been writing poetry before? I had. I uh-huh. must clarify, not very good poetry, yeah, but right. she knew I was writing poetry. And so she asked me to translate this, and I love a challenge. And it was just the most amazing experience, trying to find the right words. And translating seems to me the most intimate, deep embrace of a poem, really of any text, because you have to go so deep into it. As a translator, you read, and then you interpret, and then you have to write it. And that's a really exciting process to try to find the right sound, the right phrasing, all of that. And so from that moment on, I decided I was going to be a translator. So I had to go to graduate school to become a better translator. And To support being a translator, I needed a job. Fortunately, I found I love teaching. So really, it kind of snowballed from that moment. Yeah, that's such an interesting idea. That wasn't what I was expecting you to say, but it's a wonderful example of a professor who was taking a slightly different approach and making it a a really transformative moment. I, I could see where... You know, a lot of professors probably, and and understandably so, because you read a lot of student papers and you get to see the same things over and over. And, and there's a tendency to kind of say, well, I have the right answer. Let me see if you can come close to it. And let me see if you mm-hmm. can get it too. And instead, what she seemed to be saying was, this literature is here for all of us, but there's something lacking that you might be able to provide which is a very humble and wonderful way of asking an undergraduate student to kind of join the world of literature. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Mm. I think you got it exactly. Wow. Okay. Well, in taking on Sappho, you didn't exactly choose the path of least difficulty in terms of text to work with. (laughs) Your book includes a picture of a Sappho poem on papyrus that looked to me like it was made of tissue paper after a hard rain. 
<laughs> and I'm wondering if this is just par for the course for a classics translator. Is that what it's like translating Euripides and Sophocles as well? Or is Sappho particularly challenging in this respect? Particularly challenging. Yeah. Um, She's so many hundreds of years before even Plato and the people that we're used to reading as ancients. I mean, she goes even farther back. Yeah, so about 600 B.C. is when she was flourishing on the island of Lesbos. Mm -hmm. And I have to be clear, I'm not a papyrologist, so I don't have the skills to actually read that torn papyrus. I mean, I can make out some, Mm -hmm. um, but I don't have the skills. And so I have to wait for a printed Greek text. So somebody else has to read that and then give me a printed Greek text. And all the poetry that's found on papyrus is difficult to work with. I mean, sometimes the handwriting is beautiful and there's more solid pieces. But so all of the lyric poets whose work is found on papyrus are difficult in that way. And and some of the later women poets, too, whose work sometimes is found on papyrus. So whenever it's on papyrus, yes, it is difficult. And it's a really different experience than reading Euripides or Sophocles, where we usually have more than one copy mm-hmm. of it. And so there's just a lot more solid text to work with. While with the lyric poets, and certainly with Sappho, so much of it is real fragments. I mean, just pieces, sometimes single words. Sometimes you have the right-hand column, the left-hand column, a diagonal tear, (laughs) you know? So, I mean, we're fortunate that there are so many poems where there's enough solid poetry there to work with. Mm-hmm. Right. And then another big hole we have, just sort of presenting another degree of difficulty for you, is our knowledge of Sappho herself. And we're unable, you know, with a contemporary poet, if you were translating him or her, you might be able to read interviews or diaries or know other things about his or her life that would help you kind of fill in some gaps or make some choices. But your collaborator cited a famous encyclopedia that devotes an entire page to Sappho's life, but just leaves it as a blank page, uh, which I found very vivid. So do you find that you need biographical information to translate a poet? Or maybe the question should be, does it help? Yes, Mm -hmm. it definitely helps. And To be clear, we do have more than a blank page on Sappho. (laughs) Uh, We know where she lived. We know the time period, her particular dialect. And from her poems and the poems of her contemporary male poet, Alcius, we can tell a lot. And there's been archaeology there. So there's a lot missing. But we do have some ancient testimony Now, that's all after, long after Sappho's life. But on the other hand, they had a lot of Sappho to read. So Mm. we can get some bits from that. And there's a lot in her poetry itself. So it definitely would help to know more. I'd love to know more. But knowing when and where matters a lot. 
And that helps a lot. Right. And just how close are the fragments to Sappho's time? How much time passed between her life and the preservation of the poetry, the earliest written form that we have? The earliest one that survives, I'm pretty sure it's from 3rd century BCE. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Hundreds of years. Exactly. However, she probably wrote them down. Many people would agree on that. And people would have done cover songs of Sappho all the way. She was so famous, so Mm. popular. You know, another poet would be performing somewhere because all of this was sung to the lyre, the stringed instrument, the lyre. And so other people would have been performing that. And so perhaps she passed down a text. Perhaps it was people in her audience. And it continued that way. And there also is her dialect. That helps a lot because it was the Aeolic dialect on the island of Lesbos. And so poems written in that dialect using sapphic meters. So all the poetry is done to various meters. And so if there's the meter and the dialect, and that would help keep it closer to the original Sappho. Mm, right. Does that help a little bit? Yes, it does. And I was wondering if maybe since you're being asked to fill in these gaps and the condition on papyrus and so on of the way it's been handed down to us, almost ask for a, a measure of creativity and trying to imagine well, how would this line have been finished? Not that you're necessarily trying to complete it, but in order to translate it correctly, you'd maybe want to have a sense of where it might be going. Or I was wondering if just the the lack of biographical and historical certainty might be a little bit liberating, that it would say, we're inviting you to fill this in for us. We know there are gaps. It's not a question of getting it right or being true to the historical Sappho in a a literal sense, but more of a a spiritual sense. That's interesting. So one of the things that really drew me to Sappho's poetry, and I will get to the fragmentary and the filling in and all that, but it is so beautiful. The Mm. sound of it is beautiful. Her language is direct. The images are vivid. It all feels very intimate, and yet it was all performed. Much of it mentions community. And so one of the things, reading Sappho's poetry, her work is so vivid, I picture it all. Mm -hmm. And so when I have a fragment where there's words here or there, or there's, you know, I've got maybe a stanza and then pieces, what I try to do is be as accurate to the Greek edition that I have, the Greek text, which is why it's so important to have the most up-to-date Greek text. And so I try to be super accurate, but I also then have to allow for the reader to fill in between the gaps. And I trust my readers to be able to do that if I help a little bit. Mm. So, for example, if a poem has Put on your dot, 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 right? There's a blank. And then the next line, we have dot, 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 luster. In 
the reader's mind, it ends up being kind of put on your luster. And so what I try to do is be very conscious about what words, what phrasing I use to end where a gap starts and how I pick it up so that I can aid the reader in jumping the gap. So I do not fill in in terms of, I don't try to figure out what might have Sappho said here. The only time I do that is where there's partial letters available and various editors going, this is what must be there. We've got part of the word or Mm -hmm. the only thing that would fit grammatically. And so those I put in brackets and then I translate what is there and then I leave ellipses. And if there's a whole line missing, I leave an asterisk. So I'm signaling in the printed text for the reader to know what the physical text is like. But then I really think from my experience of hearing people talk about Sappho is that it works. I mean, we miss what we can't see. And I would love if some more was discovered and we could fill in some more blanks. And I actually think there will be. But in the meantime, I try to keep the sound of it going, keep the imagery going. So we're not just cut off. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. I was going to ask if you got some feedback either from students or or other people who have read it and whether, I mean, there must be times where you find that they have taken things in a different direction or something, but it must be very gratifying when you can feel like they're hearing what you've heard. Yes, Mm. but I'm only one person. So I'm one translator of Sappho and students always find things other people are always finding something that I missed and I'm going, oh, that's there. <laughs> so I, I mean, teachers always do this, right? We learn so much from students, from other people. But also, I learn from pre-publication reviews, but also post-publication reviews, because I read those and see, was something misinterpreted? So how can I redo that so that it's more clear. Or maybe I better look at that. Maybe that's really a clunker. And I need to figure out a better way of doing it. Mm -hmm. So I like to get lots of feedback. I've recently retired, but when I was teaching, I would always bring my drafts of everything to the classroom when I'm translating Euripides or Sophocles. I do it in a production. I bring a draft and then the cast is working with me on it and I hear what happens. And so the more responses I get to it, I think the better it turns out personally. I'm I'm not just in my, you know, little room doing this all in isolation. I have a lot of help. (laughs) Right. And my guess is that for your students, it would be similar to the experience you had at Colorado College, where they would probably be excited to say, this isn't something that's just 
etched in stone and we read it and we don't have any involvement or participation. We can see this in progress. We can see it happening and taking shape and we can see the decisions that are being made by the translator. And we can see that some of this is open for ideas and that we might be able to contribute something that will change the way this is going to get into the final product as if our ideas can be part of the conversation too. Yes, yes. And whenever a student in all my works has given me like a particular word, uh, they're always credited in my notes so or in the acknowledgments because I think that's really important part of the process. Right. My process, so much of it just has to do with listening. So I read the Greek aloud. I'm listening to the Greek. I read what I translate aloud and listen to that. I have other people read it. I listen to comments on it. I read a lot of scholarship on it, everything I can get my hands on. So it's taking in so I can get it to come out as close as possible to my experience of reading the Greek. I want to bring that to a non-Greek reading audience. Mm. So that's really what I'm trying to do here. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with more about the works of Sappho. Okay, we're back talking about Sappho and a new collection of her poetry published by Cambridge University Press and translated by our guest. Uh, Diane, one thing that I didn't really appreciate is that Sappho was more than a writer of erotic desire, although that was very important. But she also composed hymns to female deities and wrote wedding songs and satirical songs and and so on. And you say something in the introduction to this book. It says something that really struck me, which is that many of these songs, what they have in common is their focus on different aspects of the lives of women, which I thought was kind of tantalizing. Would you say that a clear picture of the emotional life of a woman of her era comes through for you in the fragments that we have? Not clear picture, but we get glimpses. Mm, That's mm -hmm. how I would put it. We get glimpses. And what we have of her poetry is definitely from a woman's perspective and focusing on what women in her community cared about, what they wanted to hear about. So, oh, I don't have a full picture, but we can look at what's there and see, ah, this mattered. Because if it didn't matter... They wouldn't be sitting in the audience listening to Sappho perform. They wanted to hear works about love between women. They wanted to hear when she performed for her public events. They wanted to hear wedding songs and various songs in festivals, but all sorts of things, all focusing on what mattered to women. Mm. Okay, so let's take the example of love. How does what Sappho tells us about love reflect the views of 
of love as it was understood in her day? And how might that in turn give us some insight into how we think of love? Oh, yeah. That's the complicated <laughs> thing, isn't it? Uh, love at any time is complicated, right? Yeah, right. So Sappho's poetry, when most of the, other than the wedding songs, it's almost entirely directed a female speaker toward a female beloved. Mm-hmm. The poems talk about passionate desire. They talk about also a communal life of women. The love seems to be far more mutual than in, for example, comparing it to the male poets. So what I need to preface this with is that the genre of lyric love poetry is one that Sappho inherits. Mm. It's not something new to her. There's all these earlier and contemporary male poets who also talk about love. But what's different is those are all from the male perspective toward either men or women. Mm-hmm. While hers, so much of it is from the female perspective. That's mm-hmm. why I always think it's interesting when people talk about Plato calling her the tense muse, because she wasn't just the inspirer of poetry, she was also the poet. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the perspective that we get in Sappho's poetry is not all the same as the male poetry, the male idea of active and passive in sexuality. For hers, there does seem to be more mutuality. Mm. But this is very, I'm interpreting this, yeah. right? Other people could argue with this. But certainly we have some poems of hers that sound really the same as the male poets. And I can just read you a really short one, if that's all right. Sure. This would be one that we could see in other poets, too. This is poem number 130. Once again, love, that loosener of limbs, seizes me. Sweet, bitter, inescapable, crawling thing. So that's the idea of Eros, love, really attacking you, grabbing you, something from outside that loosens your limbs in this kind of attack. Mm -hmm. And that fits very much with other poets, like Archilochus, one of the other older male poets. But then we have other ones that build a whole picture of a community of women. And where it seems very different. So that's kind of how I see her as different in her own time. But also, certainly, there's much that's different from now. So, for example, everyone would have married. Everyone would have been expected to get married. There's no idea of homo or heterosexuality. Mm. So the sexuality is very different. And it matters where and when. So, for example, in 5th century Athens, there really is no mention of women having homoerotic desire. That just isn't mentioned. In Sparta, at the same time, that was kind of expected in the culture. A few centuries earlier, on the island of Lesbos, it seems 
that certainly at least aristocratic women had a great deal of freedom to be with each other, to do whatever with each other. (laughs) The men were very busy with other things, and it, it does not seem to be any kind of restriction or stigma because again, Sappho was really popular in her own time. So we have really the expectations and cultural norms are different in different times, even in what we call Greece, right? So depending where and when. Right. I understand there was a distinction that was made between marital love and passionate love. Certainly the male poets write about that. Mm -hmm. And So much of what we have talks about marriage is for the purpose of producing legitimate heirs, Mm -hmm. while passion is a whole different thing. Yeah. And Sappho, I take it, is mostly on the side of passionate love. Yes, although there are the marriage songs, too. But certainly her most famous poems and the ones that draw people to her the most are really the ones Uh, about that kind of passionate desire and that kind of passionate love, definitely. And what do you mean by that there's more mutuality to her? Do you mean that the male poets tended to basically say, I am head over heels in love and this is what it's doing to me. I can't sleep. My limbs are consumed with desire and that sort of thing. Or do you mean something else? What I'm talking about is more the idea of the active lover and a passive Mm. beloved. Mm -hmm. Whether the passive beloved is another man, whether it's a woman, the speaker tends to be the active one. Now, love makes everyone passive. Love makes you do things. You're not the master, which is why there's so much struggle and conflict around it. Right. But we don't see exactly the same kind of active passive the master and the slave sort of idea Mm -hmm. and again this is my ideas of it and other people could see it differently there's certainly some poems that are quite martial where you have aphrodite in poem one saying that what do you want me to do sappho i will make this person love you even against her will. Mm. So (laughs) um, that's not exactly all warm and fuzzy there. But there's a couple poems, a a few longer ones in particular, where there's a lot of passion, but there's also, I keep coming back to this idea of a community of women. And that's something that we see in so much of Sappho's poetry where you would think it would be all singular, there's, it's talking about a we that includes more than just the lover and the beloved, let's say. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. What was her community exactly? Was she part of a culture of poets and poetry fans? Or I remember hearing that she traveled around almost like what we would think of today as a a folk singer or something, giving concerts in different places. And do we know if there were other women who were also doing this kind of songwriting and she just happens to have been the best and that's why we know her name and not the names of these others? Or what do we know about her culture exactly? Yeah. So 
Greek culture in general is a poetry culture. Mm-hmm. Poetry is song and dance. So lots of performing, lots of singing, and people who would expect quality singing and performing. Mm-hmm. We also can tell from her poetry that there were other women mm-hmm. that were also performing. Some of them seem to be rivals. And from her poetry, we can picture maybe she's hanging out with friends sometimes, performing, certainly lots of more public performances. And she would have been performing really various places on the island of Lesbos. She wouldn't have been traveling elsewhere. I mean, there's some sense that at one point she would have gone to Sicily, Mm. But she's not a traveling poet like the later male poets, for example. I really see her, she's a citizen poet. Mm. And so she's mostly performing for people who know her, almost entirely performing for people who know her, who know her family. And there would be a lot of different venues, a lot of different occasions that she would be performing, perhaps some of them. She would be playing the lyre and other women would be singing. Perhaps sometimes she was singing and they would be dancing. So there's a lot of different possibilities because her poems seem to assume different venues. Some would have been at weddings. So she's not like a modern poet that goes on circuits. Mm. There were later male poets who did, but women poets did not. But there still would be that whole culture of poetry, of singing, of performing. Yeah, and within her community. And so it does tell us something about the community around her because it's she wasn't worried that she was going to be cast into exile or something if she was too forward or too frank. It seems like they must have been accepting of the ideas that were in her poems. Yes, because all the songs we have would have been performed. And so performance assumes that there's an audience that wants to hear them. And since she was so popular, we know her audience wanted to hear these. (laughs) Right. So, and audiences later, they wanted to hear what she had to say. And so even though they sound so intimate, we have to keep picturing these all as performance. So even though it sounds like diary or journal, it's all performed to an eager audience that wants to hear this, that she's presenting something that they can feel or persuading them of something that they should feel. You know, it depends, but she's an expression of her society. And so in that way, we can picture more of it. Mm hmm. You talked earlier about the beauty of her verse. Were you talking about the imagery and the expression or actually the sound of the Greek as it's come through to us? Both. Mm. First of all, Greek is really musical. Mm -hmm. And in her times, it would have been tonal, too. And the meter, the repetition of sound. So the sound of it and the meters would have been beautiful to hear. And even just reading it is embedded in the Greek itself. So that although I'm sorry we can't hear the music, the Greek is musical in itself. Mm. And so that's beautiful, but it's also the imagery is just so amazing. I mean, 
poem number one, and this is often called the hymn to Aphrodite. But she has Aphrodite in this poem, says she's leaving Olympus, your chariot yoked with lovely sparrows, drawing you quickly over the dark earth in a whirling cloud of wings down the sky through midair, suddenly here. Mm. Do you see what I mean about images? Yeah, right. Her chariot is being pulled by this whirling cloud of sparrows flying through the air and landing. Yeah, that was so beautiful. Do you have any other examples of what you appreciate about Sappho and how you attempted to convey that in English? Sure, there's so many. I can give you a stanza from the first poem I translated, and one of the reasons why it grabbed me. Cold water ripples through apple branches. The whole place shadowed in roses. From the murmuring leaves, deep sleep descends. Mm. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) In the Greek, there's all this repetition of the omega sound. So it's kind of like om, om, om. And so what I was trying to do in the English is have some kind of enchanting repetition because the sound of the poem is exactly what it's doing. It's all talking about this enchanted grove of Aphrodite. And so I was trying to get that. I couldn't get the om om sound, but so I had other things like the murmuring leaves, deep sleep descends. And so it's that kind of thing. Yeah. Sappho is gorgeous and I just do the best I can with it. (laughs) Yeah. Now, you've been translating Sappho for a while. Yeah. What's been discovered since you first started? Or maybe I should ask, what's in the new book that hasn't been in previous editions? I translated, other than my 1980 college edition, Sappho's Liar came out in 1991. And then the first edition of this Sappho book in 2014 There was a new Sappho poem discovered in 2004, and actually it wasn't totally new. It slotted right into a torn papyrus that we already have. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, talk about puzzle pieces, and it's just beautiful. And so that was really exciting. And then in 2014, there were two new ones and a bunch of pieces of other ones came to light. All of those were in my first edition of the Sappho, but those were translated in haste because they came out after I had already turned in the page proofs, actually, and we just kind of stopped everything and added them Mm. in just a couple months. So there wasn't time to really know more about the text enough. Mm -hmm. And so all of those ones that came to light in 2014, I have pretty extensively retranslated just because of other little pieces and just new scholarship on them. And then what was really wonderful is in 2021, Camilo Neri came out with a new Greek edition that There'd been other smaller ones, but this, I think, is really the definitive one. And it 
has everything in there and it it's so good and he really graciously allowed us to use that before it was published and so he gave us a pdf to work from and so i went through all my translations from the first edition and checked them against this latest one and the new scholarship and all of that and so i made various adjustments some of them very small some of them pretty major And then there were also poems that I hadn't considered at all because they're so fragmentary. Mm. Anything that he had in his Greek edition, I made sure it was in here because maybe they'll be more found and we'll just slot it right in, right? right? Or maybe a poet now will get inspired by this little bit and fill it out and turn to new poetry. There's also... 11 poems that I added in this edition that are considered, they're either Sappho or Alcea. That's her male contemporary because they show the same time period, the same dialect. And so some people thought, well, this is Alcea's, some say this is Sappho's. And so ones that he accepted as Sappho that we also agreed were Sappho, I put in. And so that's 11 more poems that weren't in the earlier edition. I keep trying to get closer to the Greek to somehow get more of it, more of what I can see in the Greek text into the English. Right. It's so interesting because you'd think that, you know, we've now had 2,600 years to get this complete and get this right. You'd think it would be very static by now, and instead it sounds much more dynamic than a poet from, say, 1960 or something would be. That It sounds like there are discoveries and reasons to rethink and rediscover Sappho that are happening all the time. There are, yeah. I can give you one example. Let's see. Poem number 102, and this is a real popular one. Sweet mother, I cannot weave. Slender Aphrodite has overcome me with longing for a girl. (laughs) I was the first one to translate it for a girl. The Mm. Greek is paidos, which is the neuter word for girl, child, boy, even slave. And so it's up to the translator then to figure out which one of those do we want to use. In my earlier translations, I used boy because everybody was. Mm. And then it just struck me, reading again the Greek, that it makes a lot more sense for this to be homoerotic. And since in English, we really need to put either boy or girl, Mm -hmm. why not put girl? And then I looked at all her uses of this word in Greek, and almost all of them with the clear exceptions had other markers for the masculine, they were all feminine. So knowing Sappho's other work, knowing how she used particular words, all of that, now it's girl. And that just rings really true. In this edition, I also used girlfriend once instead of companion. The Greek is feminine, so it's female companion. And I like the way girlfriend has that double sense of the Greek word. So it's either a girl who is your friend or a romantic connection, right? 
Right. So that's what I mean by coming up with the way language changes and what is more possible perhaps now than when I was translating many decades ago. Right. I wonder if Marsha Dobson had any idea what a powder keg she was putting a match to when she put uh, Sappho <laughs> in your hands. <laughs> I don't know. It is know, wonderful, but... yeah. Okay, well, let's leave things there. The book is called Sappho, A New Translation of the Complete Works. Diane Rayor, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. And thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity to bring Sappho to more people. And that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed that one. Diane wanted us to mention that you can, in addition to getting the book, you can also listen to all of the Sappho fragments read aloud, courtesy of the book's publisher, Cambridge University Press. Just go to their website at cambridge.org, search for Sappho, and when you find the book translated by Diane J. Rayor, click on Resources, and you'll find the audio links there. Or you can Google Cambridge Sappho Higher Education Resources, and it should come up right at the top. The audio links will be on the left-hand side of the page. My thanks to Diane for joining me today and for her work making Sappho lively and available to the rest of us and for her career in teaching. I think you can tell what kind of teacher she was and is. We will be back with the Marquis de Sade soon. I know I've been promising that for a while. I've been putting it off because the weather has been so nice and, and the Marquis for all of his strengths and weaknesses, is kind of a mood dampener. I find some bleak and terrifying stuff in there, but also a fascinating story and a fascinating story of a very special manuscript. So maybe we're going to pair that with another compelling manuscript, Shakespeare's First Folio, which turns 400 this year. We'll have Emma Smith, who will return to tell us all about the book and the birthday. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.